For decades, the details of Wilmington's 1898 coup and massacre were kept quiet. I grew up in this town and graduated from high school in 1988, and never once did I hear a word about the white supremacist coup, which left dozens of black people dead and forced many more out of town under threat of death. To this day, it's the only instance in American history of a violent overthrow of a local government on U.S. soil. In the mid-1990s, before its 100th anniversary, the coup started to find its way into public discourse, and Wilmington began to reckon with its legacy. Now, it seems like new information comes out about 1898 all the time. The latest is the documentary film, McKinley's Guns, that screens October 13th at Thalian Hall, on the very stage where, in 1898, local whites were exhorted to attack their black neighbors. This is Cape Fear and Earth, the podcast exploring the legends, historical oddities, and landmark stories of southeastern North Carolina. I'm your host, John Staten, and I'm a reporter with the Star News here in Wilmington. We're a Gannett paper that's part of the USA Today network. Kinley's Guns was directed by and stars Kent Chatfield, who grew up in Wilmington and has been doing in-depth research on 1898 for nearly two decades. Previously, Chatfield appeared in Christopher Everett's groundbreaking documentary, Wilmington on Fire, in which Chatfield's wry, indignant findings played a starring role. Now, he's making his own series of films with producer Troy Carlton, researcher Jared Smith, and others. McKinley's Guns is the first in a planned series of four documentaries about 1898. After scouring thousands of pages of century-old regimental histories of U.S. troop movements and other documents, Chatfield said he's determined that the coup had involvement from military officers and U.S. government officials at a higher level than has previously been revealed, as he talks about in this week's episode of Cape Fear and Earth. If you miss McKinley's guns on October 13th at Thalian Hall, Chatfield said it will begin streaming online starting November 10th. All right. So, Kent Chatfield, thank you for uh, sitting in with Cape Fear on Earth. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you um, now now you grew up in Wilmington. What was the first uh, the first time you ever remember hearing about 1898? Because I I grew up here and I didn't remember hearing about it till like the late 90s when the hundredth anniversary was coming up. Well, um, when I was a child, um, my family attended First Baptist Church at Pitt uh, and Market Street. Yep. And right next door to it was the public library, which is the Wilmington Light Infantry Building. I remember that was, that was where I got my first library card. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, um, I'm the youngest of six kids. There's four boys and two girls. And um, my two middle brothers were both in Boy Scouts at First Baptist Church. And... Sometimes they met out on Middle Sound Loop Road, and other times we met in a house across the street, across Market Street from the church. And that was normally where they met at. And um, my oldest brother, who's 13 years older than me, he would drive all of us down there. And my two middle brothers would go to Boy Scouts, and my oldest brother and I would go across the street to the library, the Wilmington Light Infantry Building, and I'd turn in my books from the week before, check out some new books. I was about five or six while this was going, when this started. And um, then we go down into the basement to the Wilmington Light Infantry Room, which is where they had basically moved all of the 
well-insulated infantry's uh, paraphernalia, all their guns, their swords, pistols, their uh, um, diaries, their regimental histories. They, they crammed them all into a room down in the basement. Of was, the that was that was probably pretty fascinating for a little kid. Oh, it was it was a treasure trove. I mean, it's always something new to find in that room. And um, in 1968, I was uh, six years, well, I was five years old, and um, Dr. King was killed. And we had riots here in Wilmington. And um, this little old man started showing up on Thursday nights and Sunday mornings, which when I was always down there because we went to church every Sunday and went to scouts every Thursday night. Right. And... Um, and so I, you know, I'd, I'd sit there and I'd play with the guns. I'd check out my books, and my brother and I would go down to the basement, and we'd go in the Wilmington Light Infantry Room. And there was this old man in there, and he was telling stories. He told stories about, you know, the the Wilmington Light Infantry in the Civil War, and a um, lot of lot of lot of 1898 stuff. And what he was doing was he was. Um, Saying there was a lot of people showing up down there listening to this guy. Yeah. It turned out his name was Champ Davis. Yeah, he's well known in Wilmington. Yeah, and Champ Davis had been a corporal in Company K, Wilmington Light Infantry, during the Spanish American War. And um, we found that they were extensively involved in the coup. And he would sit there and tell stories of how they had pulled this off. Wow. And you know, I, and I listened, this went on for years. Yeah, so it sounds like it was almost like, I mean, it was almost something talked about behind closed doors because there certain, certainly wasn't much um, discussion of it, you know, in the public. No, there wasn't. And he, um, in fact, I'm, I'm about to tell you a story about that. Um, that he would, Chad Davis was telling all the white men that were showing up that um, they needed to reform the red shirts and put the inward people back in their place. And this was like every Sunday morning, every Thursday night. And um, one Sunday morning, we were there and he was telling stories. And they came over and said that the church was open and come on over for Sunday school. And so all of us got up, you know, had the kids all headed out. There was a whole bunch of kids there. And um, we went next door. And as we're walking through the little park at First Baptist Church, to go to the door, um, one of the kids, he was he was older than me. He was probably 13, 12, 13 years old. And uh, he was talking about, yeah, his granddaddy had been in um, the Wilmington Light Infantry and how he had been involved in the coup and the, and the shooting and how they shot down all these black people. And all of a sudden, his dad walked up and jerked him up by the arm and said, I told you not to talk about that. Wow. Well, we didn't see that kid at church for several months wow. after that. Okay, well, then, so that was kind of the basis, but, um, you know, fast forward, I think you said you started working on doing really kind of in-depth 1898 research about 20 years ago. Is that right? Yeah, I started in October of uh, 2003. Yeah, and then what, yeah. Kind of, then what kind of prompted that? I mean, obviously, you know, you're a... You're a history buff. You're a fan of history, but what kind of uh, what kind of got you into that uh, deep dive you've been doing for almost two decades now? Well, um, the um, the state created the 1898 Race Act uh, Committee. Yep. 
sometime in the mid nineties. Yep. And um, I remember when they when they formed it, I, I just kind of sat back and laughed because you know I, I said, well, what are they going to find? Right. These guys are on this commission. They're not, you know. I mean, these are where's your researchers? Right. Your archivists, and um, they didn't have any. They didn't have any budget either. And um, so they announced in October of 2003 that the Ray Commission was being disbanded, that they hadn't met in two and a half years. Right. Um, everybody was dead and all the records were missing. And when I saw that article, and I believe it was in the Star News, um, I picked up a telephone and made one telephone call and um, about an hour later, I got a return phone call, and the next day, I had my hands on a bunch of records that no one had ever researched before. Wow. And it was William Barry McCoy's um, papers. And William Barry McCoy was an attorney in Wilmington in 1898, and he was the executive chairman of the white government union. And I found that. It actually, in his records, I found the Constitution and Bylaws, I found the membership lists. Um, it was just, uh, I mean, a, a lot. Well, and that kind of got you going, but, well, you know, and since then, obviously, in the last, you know, there's been you know, Pulitzer Prize winning books written about this thing. I mean, there's been a lot more attention, um, you know, nationally, you know, like internationally. What has that been like to kind of see, um, you know, then obviously, you know, you were in uh, Wilmington on Fire, uh, Chris Everett's documentary. Yes. Um, so what has it been like for you to kind of see the, you know, um, people are interested in this and people want to kind of, you know, know what happened and know the details and kind of. Um, well, it's, it's um, everybody who does any work on this at all contributes to us getting to the truth. Yeah. And, you know, every little piece is a piece to the puzzle. And. You know, I've based my research primarily on um, hard evidence, hard handwritten facts, records. Right. And um, I spoke to David Zucchino uh, three years before he wrote his book. Yeah. Or before he published yep. it. And the author of, uh, of uh, uh, Wilmington's Lie. Wilmington's Lie. Lie. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and we, we spoke in depth. And, um, you know, at that point, I had not got my hands on the treasure trove of yeah. records that I did I didn't even know existed. Um after I spoke with him, I went to the National Archives in Washington DC and I found twelve thousand pages of records that that are directly related to the coup. Yeah, and that's what and and those records and that research read, led to uh what would become, you know, your first I guess part one of four Films on yes. uh, uh, McKinley's guns. McKinley's guns. Yeah. So when did um were you always planning to make a film, or did you were just kind of wanting to go and see where things led, and then once you found the stuff, yeah, you decided I knew, to. I knew back in two thousand February two thousand four, I was going to end up having to make a documentary to get this research out. Um. Yeah. When I when I saw what the race riot commission was doing, you know, I I realized I was going to have to do it myself. Um. You know, I I had told them about regimental histories in D.C. Yeah. And they had assured me they had gone and gotten them and there was nothing there. And I went there and um, 
I asked the archives when was the last time anybody had checked these books out because they keep a record of that. Yeah. And uh, they had never been checked out since 1899. I mean, that, that's not surprising in a way because, I mean, that's some pretty, uh, as you said, that's some pretty tough reading, right? Pages and pages of records, handwritten. Yeah, these, these books are huge. Um, they're, they're not like, I mean, they're, they're probably 18 inches tall, uh, 12 inches wide. And every bit of it's written in cursive. Wow. Well, and so, and, and so what really strikes me about your film, I think, what is new, I think, the general, as you talked about in a recent talk um, I saw you at, I think the general consensus is, oh, you know, this is kind of a spontaneous uh, uprising of, you know, bar owners and business owners. Um, I think in recent years, we've kind of learned that it was a little more organized, but I think what's new about your film is that you, that you kind of show how high up um, it went. It wasn't just a local thing. It wasn't just a state thing. It went beyond that. Well, we've got three major generals of the United States Army directly involved, uh, as well as their their staff that is underneath of them, because these major generals they're the top, right? And they get, they give the, the the orders trickle down, and so when Pitsy Lee was given orders. You know, it trickled right on down through his command staff into his brigades. Okay, yeah, so tell me about Fitzhugh Lee a little bit, because he's a real key part of your film. Well, Fitzhugh Lee was a slave owner, was a nephew of Robert E. Lee, and he was a general in the Army of the Confederacy. And um, he fought all the way to the end. He, he surrendered a month after Robert E. Lee did, and um, Fitzhugh Lee surrendered in Durham, North Carolina in May of 1865. He was one of the last holdouts. Okay. And um, he was the commanding general of the 7th U.S. Army Corps during the Spanish-American War. And he was appointed by the president, which is unusual. Um, usually, uh, major generals have to be appointed, have to be approved, have to be confirmed yeah. by the Senate. Um, they, these guys skipped all that. Yeah, so this is the time when a lot of the former Confederates were kind of being folded back into the yeah that all the American began, military. That all began in 1895 when the United States dedicated its first military park, and that was Chickamauga National Military Park in Georgia. And during the dedication ceremonies that went on for like a week, um, all these Confederates, former Confederates, and these uh, former Union soldiers all gathered at Chickamauga. I mean, it's thousands of them. And um, that's where they kind of sort of made up. And, you know, um, they changed it from the War to Rebellion, which is what had been called up to that point, to the Civil War. There's nothing civil about war. Well, for sure. Well, and tell me a little bit about, um, and so... This is the, uh, I guess, part one of four. McKinley's Guns is screening at Thayen Hall on October 13th. Um, and you kind of lay out, this is you. This is kind of like the groundwork, right? This is the... Yeah, this, is, this lays the foundation of, of the organization of the coup. Um, how they actually spent months preparing for this. Um, you know, it was, it was far from something that was spontaneous. And that rumor actually came from a telegram that was sent from Wellington um, 
the day after the coup, and it came from the deputy U.S. marshal who was uh, stationed in Wilmington. And this guy sent a telegram to his boss in Raleigh, the uh, U.S. marshal for North Carolina. Right. Um, he sent him a telegram saying that um, the blacks had lost the election and that they had rose up and that they had to call out the state guard to put put down the uprising and that um, only 11 or 12 people were killed. And that has been the narrative until my research came out. And, yeah. and you know, when when I released my research to the Race Riot Commission, the, the narrative changed. And... Um, People began to see it for what it was. Yeah. It wasn't just a spontaneous riot. And see, also during the day in 1898, when they put out that story that the black people had rose up yeah. and they had to call out state, they got that from an actual event that happened in Tampa, Florida in May of 1898 when we were flooding this town with 30,000 troops to get them ready to go on the ships for the invasion of Cuba. Right. Uh, Tampa, Florida at the time had a population of 1,500 people. And half of the stores in town had whites only signs. This is what one of your first places that began uh, Jim Crow segregation was Tampa, Florida. And uh, so they had 20,000 white troops that they brought in by train and 10,000 African American troops that they brought in by train. And the military was segregated. And so, um, some uh, a white regiment from Ohio, which is where McKinley was from, um, they were there, and they kidnapped a local um, African American boy, ten years old, and they used him for target practice. And uh, they were laying wagers on it and everything. Well, the the African American troops. Had something to say about that, and they rose up and burned half of uh, Tampa to the ground. And uh, they called out the, the white troops to try to stop them, and they refused. So then it, that began a big conversation in the press in the United States about whether black troops were even qualified to serve in the U.S. Army. And that was that right there was when the, for the foundation of it began. Well, and that's a big part of your film. I mean, that's a big part of your film, right? I think there was... Uh... Three, uh, three North Carolina regiments, two black, one. I'm one, sorry, two one black, two white. Right, one black, two white, and that and that that plays a um, a big part in your film. Yes, it does. Uh, the the second regiment appears to have been the red shirts that were um, committing the pre-war uh, or the uh, pre-coup uh, terrorist campaign, red shirt terrorist campaign during the election. That appears to have been mainly in North Carolina. It was the second regiment, North Carolina volunteers. Yeah, and, and, and here's a real interesting point. I thought was that um, so they were connected with Donald McRae, who was the father of Hugh McRae, and you said that uh, they were probably stationed at uh, his fertilizer uh, plant in Navassa. Yes, they were stationed all around the railroad line in Navassa, in Brunswick County, and most of that area is still wooded. Yeah, and yeah. exploring out there, and there's there's evidence that, that they were there, and so that's that's going to be upcoming in uh, part two. Okay. Yeah. Well, what do you want? You know, and I guess uh, you're screening, you're doing the Thalian Hall screenings. Um, what do you want to kind of accomplish with this? You know, with this first chapter. Well, we're gonna get the narrative out. You know, of what we found, 
evidence for themselves. Yeah. And um, and also we're, we're raising funds for um, our community. A portion of the proceeds are going to the Northside Food Co-op. And um, the remainder we're going to use for part two. It's um, yeah, the hardest part of doing this has been funding. Well, I imagine it's a lot of that's a lot of time. I mean, you, you know, you talk about going through those records and um, what was um, I made? Let's see, three trips to Macon, Georgia, three trips to Washington D.C., um, about fifteen trips to Raleigh, uh, one trip to Fort Macon, North Carolina. So it's yes, yeah, that's a lot. It's been a lot, lot of what, what was the yes? Yeah, so last question I'll ask you: What is you know, all the research you've done, um, what what was the biggest surprise to you? What was the the biggest surprise that you found? Mm. Um, actually, the biggest surprise I think I found was Joseph Franklin Armfield, the regular general in the picture yep. from, Bladen, from Bladen Street. I think that was the, the biggest find. When I found him... I knew then it went right up the chain of command because you're you're not bringing out a brigadier general. See, he had about twenty thousand men under his direct command. Right. So you know he he commanded half of Fitzhugh Lee's corps, and so to find someone that high up, I mean that that's just I mean it, it kind of it shocked me a little bit. Yeah. He would actually stand there and let him take a picture of him. Well, you know, I guess. You know, back then it was a little different, right? I mean, now, uh, wait, well, tell me a little bit about what his um, arm field, what his, because uh, you, you have, I found pictures of him when he was here in Wilmington during the, during the coup, right? Yes. Yes, we have, we have found him. And um, going back to the first regiment, North Carolina Volunteers, he was their brigadier general. And, um, it's it's all in their regimental history that he he was actually furloughed from his camp, um, as well as two thousand other men, and he brought two thousand men, close to two thousand men, with him from Savannah when he came up on uh, November the eighth, the day of the election, and there was about five hundred. Um, of the second regiment that were here, so there was over two thousand men that were actually pulling triggers in Wellington. Yeah, that's uh, and I think it's now. See, I think that's the more that's the new thing I think about your film is that it's uh, on the level of military involvement, which is I think a little more than people uh, have been aware of up to now. Yeah, it's um, it, it's like they're in their own hand, and um. Donald McCray was the adjutant for the uh, First Regiment North Carolina Volunteers, and the adjutant is the one that keeps your records and writes your passes and 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 furloughs and such. So, Don, all you know, the First Regiment, most of it's in Donald McCray's handwriting. Wow. Well, Kent, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, thank you so much for your time and for your work. Uh, McKinley's Guns will be screened at Thalian Hall. Uh, October thirteenth. That's a Thursday. Uh, I would. Uh, it's. Uh, it, it is fascinating. It's troubling. Um, if you uh, want to know more about Wilmington's history and the real facts of what happened, I would say uh, it's a film you need to see. Kent Chatfield, thank you so much. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me.
And that's it for this episode of Cape Fear and Earth and our look at the 1898 documentary McKinley's Guns, which is screening at Thalian Hall October 13th. And it will be available for streaming starting November 10th. We'll be back soon with another chapter of Wilmington history. Till then, make sure you're a member of our Facebook group where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content from each episode and links to all my coverage of local history for the Star News. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear and Earth on Facebook. Don't forget to sign up for the Cape Fear and Earth newsletter that goes out every Thursday. Sign up for the newsletter at starnewsonline.com newsletters. Cape Fear and Earth was written, edited, and hosted by yours truly, John Staten. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com. This podcast was made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear and Earth by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your show so you never miss an episode. While you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear and Earth. Till then, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. You never know what you might unearth.